If you would turn in your copy of the scriptures to Luke chapter 1. I'm going to actually start reading in verse 26. So if you're depending on the bulletin or the screen this morning, you'll you'll catch up with us a few verses in. Um, It's a longer passage, so if you would, remain seated and just follow along in your copy of the scriptures. For those who are not familiar with this passage or who have not read it in a while, let me set up the scene for us. The angel Gabriel has appeared to a priest named Zechariah and told him that Zechariah's barren wife, Elizabeth, will conceive and bear a son in her old age. And the angel tells Zechariah that they are to name the child John and that he will go before the Lord to prepare the people for his coming. And this is the point where we pick up the story. In Luke chapter 1, verse 26, hear now the word of the Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting This might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now in verse 39. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy 
as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, this morning we have listened in on some of the sweetest dialogue in all of Scripture. But it is not just sweet, it is deeply personal and expansively cosmic. As we look at this conversation between these two women, I pray that we would learn from them, that we would follow in their footsteps as they follow you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now this weekend I was reading a book by Greg Kokel titled The Story of Reality. Has, everyone, has anyone seen this? Not one person. Okay. Uh, it's great, actually. And it, it, it's a provocative title for a number of reasons. It implies that the real world is out there. And that, and that what's in here is following a storyline. And it implies that one could actually know this story, as Kokel claims to. And it implies one could tell this story to others. In the introduction, Kokel asks the question, what is Christianity? Now, most people in the world would say, well, Christianity is one among many world religions. And in some sense, that would be true. But Kokel offers a different definition. He says, Christianity is a picture of reality. It's an account or description or depiction of the way things actually are. And he explains that Christianity is not just a view of the inside, the personal faith of the believer with God. No, it's also, and perhaps even more importantly, a view of the outside. It's a view of the world out there as it really is. Did you know that every person in this room, without exception, the mature Christian, the confused Christian, the skeptic, the conscientious atheist, and the sadly apathetic, is living his or her life on the basis of some story of reality, some belief in a version of the way things really are. And that story of reality on which we, we base our lives, it affects everything for us, doesn't it? It affects the decisions that we make. The, the way we see ourselves. The way we see and treat others. It affects our relationships. It affects the way we look at our vocation. I could go on and on. Understand this. What you think the story of reality is affects every aspect of your life. Now, I don't want to suggest there's any one of us in this room that sees the world and ourselves with perfect clarity. We don't. But I want to say this. Your story of reality matters. This exchange between Elizabeth and Mary, it has so much to teach us about this. In their response to the things that have been accomplished among them and in them, we see a clarity and a faithfulness and a commitment to the true story of reality that is just simply rare in our day. Let me put it this way. They understand what story they are in. And when we take a closer look at this exchange between Elizabeth and Mary... 
And how they respond, we're going to see three things. They know who God is. They know who they are. And they know who the Messiah is. Or we could say it this way. They get God right. They get themselves right. They get Jesus right. Now first, they get God right. Elizabeth and Mary grew up in Jewish homes. Do you know what that means? It means they were the uh, children of Jewish parents. Do you know what that means? It means they knew the story. They knew the story of Israel. They, they had no doubt who God was. Do you know why? Because God had revealed himself to Israel. He had revealed himself as creator and sustainer and savior. And as young girls, their imaginations would have swirled. Do you know this? They would have swirled with images of God's creative act that they heard about in Genesis. How God created the whole world and everything in it. And when the, when the angel came to Mary and said, and Mary said, how is this going to happen? What's the mechanism? Because I don't know a man. The angel's response was, the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you. Do you know where Mary's mind probably went to? The very first verse of Holy Scripture. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, bringing form to what was void. And they would have heard the whole story. They would have known of the promise made to Abraham that God was going to make him into a great nation through his seed. They would have heard about captivity in Egypt and rescue through the Passover. They would have heard of the wilderness journeys and God's provision, the taking of the land, the reign of the Davidic kingdom, and then sadly, the exile, and then the return to the land. Mary and Elizabeth's minds were saturated with the story God was writing. And most importantly, they along with the others in Israel who remained faithful, those who still believed that God would someday make good on his promise, prayed and longed for the appearing of the Messiah. That is one of the most beautiful things about the Advent songs we sing, is it highlights the longing. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. Don't miss the longing in the Advent season. But they knew that God would make good on the promise of the appearing of Messiah, the anointed one of God. How do I know this? Because, friends, this exchange between Elizabeth and Mary is replete. I mean, it is dripping with the language, the imagery, and the allusions of the Old Testament. These women knew the scriptures. It's the reason they get God right. In verse 47, Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. You will find a similar sentiment in Psalm 35 and Isaiah 61. In verse 49, she says, He who is mighty has done great things for me. Language that sounds remarkably like seven, Psalm 71 and Psalm 89. I don't need to belabor the point. If you have a study Bible or the internet, you can look it up for yourself. The point is this, Mary's not quoting these passages. They're not exact quotations. Her mind is so saturated with the language of Scripture that she interprets her own experience in the language and themes of God's Word. 
She not only highlights God's might and His power and His willingness and ability to save, but in verse 50, she praises God for His mercy. In 51, she remembers that He brings down the proud and lifts up the lowly. She remembers God's ministry to the poor, and she praises Him for the promise that He made to Abraham and his offspring forever. Mary gets God right because she has hidden in her heart the treasures of the Word of God. And let's don't leave Elizabeth out. In verse 25, when Elizabeth found out she had conceived in her old age, she quoted Rachel, another woman of whom the Lord had opened a barren womb. Because the story of Scripture was so ingrained in her that she immediately saw her own connection with it. From Genesis chapter 30, she exclaimed, The Lord has done for me in day, these days when He looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Now let me ask us a question as a church this morning. Do our children know the language, the imagery, and the illusions of Scripture? Do we? When our children are out in the world hearing the competing stories of who God is and who we are and who the Messiah is, will the language of Scripture so well up within them that it puts down the falsehood? And rejoice in God their Savior. Let me get practical. When my wife emails and says, we need Sunday school teachers, will you respond? Now don't respond out of guilt. Respond out of the welling up inside your soul the Holy Spirit is doing right now to say, our children must know the story that God is writing. There is only one true story of reality that gets God right. And we must tell it to our children. Mary and Elizabeth got God right because their minds had been bathed in the true story. Lord, let it be with our own children and let it be with us. Amen? But they not only got God right, they got themselves right. Or better said, they understood who they were before the God of heaven and earth. Humility is the only state in which man can ever exist in the presence of God. Elizabeth and Mary both live in a state of genuine humility. Now the text does not make it perfectly clear how Elizabeth knew that her cousin was pregnant with the unborn Messiah. Did that question come to your mind this morning as we read? How did she know? Well, there's a couple of options. Some have suggested that Mary had sent news ahead of her uh, journey, telling Elizabeth the story of the angel's announcement. Now, other commentators think that this greeting of Mary in verse 41 was more than a simple, hi, how are you, and an embrace. No, that the greeting of Mary actually had within it all of these truths about what had happened to her. And that she immediately told Elizabeth all that Gabriel had said. That's, that's a reasonable option, I think. But there's a third option, and this is where I personally land, that the Holy Spirit revealed all this truth to Elizabeth and gave her an understanding of the moment. But whichever it was, when Mary enters Elizabeth's house, Elizabeth realizes Mary is carrying the unborn Messiah in her womb, and she exclaims, And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Can you imagine for a moment the heart of Elizabeth? 
Just try to, as Robert would say, incarnate with her a bit. Unable to bear a child of her own until about her 60th year, having given up all hope that that would be part of her story. And now full of joy and excitement and awe at the provision of God, and now she welcomes into her own home the mother of the long-awaited Messiah that we sing about in the Advent season. And her response is, why this great honor granted to me? If you know Psalm 8, it's the sentiment of Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Elizabeth, with her robust theology of who God is, cannot fathom that these many blessings continue to flow to her. She is truly humble before God. And Mary, too, showed humility from the beginning. In verse 38, when the angel explains how this marvelous conception, this miraculous conception will occur, she responds, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Do you realize what an incredible statement of submission and faith that is? The angel did not see, and I'm going to need you to bake some bread and take it to your neighbor tomorrow. No. The ramifications on Mary's life of this pregnancy and the life of Joseph, for that matter, they're going to be significant. So much so that the pregnancy almost led to Joseph divorcing her quietly to protect her honor and her own life. But Mary trusted the Lord's word and his plan because she understood who she was and the part that she was playing in God's story. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you feel like God owes you something? Do you have a set of demands that you have given God before you will humble yourself before his mighty, holy person? You have taken the wrong stance before a mighty, holy, merciful, redeeming God. Elizabeth and Mary are wise. You are a fool. And I can say that with empathy. Because I too have been a fool. I too have acted foolish before God. Mary says in 51, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. When we approach God in any other stance than humility, we have simply forgotten ourselves. Now don't misunderstand The Psalms make it clear they are proof that we can approach God honestly with a range of emotions. You can be joyous and humble. You can be sad and humble. You can be afraid or confused or maybe even angry and humble. You cannot be proud and humble. Remember who God is. A mighty, holy, merciful, gracious, just, forgiving God. Remember who you are. A man or woman made in his image but sinful and in need of redemption. 
Elizabeth and Mary, they got God right, they got themselves right, and most importantly, they got the Messiah right. Now look at verse 41 with me. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. All of a sudden, we realize there is more going on here than we first thought. In fact, there are actually more people in this scene than we thought there were. Now it's not only Elizabeth and Mary who are players in this scene of the story that God is writing. This joyous occasion is not a mere meeting between cousins. It is a cosmic forerunning of the next act in God's story, the act of redemption. The six-month-in-utero John the Baptist hears the greeting of Mary, and he too is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he leaps at the presence of Mary and the unborn Jesus. Now, at this point, you may say, oh, come on. I mean, let's don't be presumptuous here. I've had a baby. Babies kick. Babies leap. You know, that, that's true. It is. It can be Mexican food. Uh, I mean, there are a number of ways. You know, an uncomfortable lying position. But could John have really heard the greeting of Mary inside the womb? A few days ago, I was talking with Jennifer Ford about this passage. Jennifer teaches anatomy and physiology. And she was telling me about the, the ossification of the bones in the human ear. It turns out that at about six months of development, the unborn child in the womb can hear not only his or her mother's voice, but the child can begin to hear sounds and even other voices outside of the mother's body. And they can, at this point, and often do, even turn their eyes and face in the direction of the sound they've heard. Did God delay the conception of the Messiah long enough for the unborn John the Baptist's ear bones to ossify in order that he could leap for joy at the very first pronouncement of the coming of the Messiah. We have no idea, but that would be like God. And do you know why? There is not one detail in the history of the world that is not fine-tuned to tell the story that God is writing, even ear bone ossification. Amazing! But regardless of the human development possibilities, I see at least three reasons in this text to believe that the leap of John was in response to the presence of the Messiah in Mary's womb. Now, if you've closed your Bible, open it up again. We're in Luke 1. Verse 41 says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed that Mary's greeting was why the baby leaped. Now, when you see the phrase in Scripture, so-and-so was filled with the Holy Spirit and said, 
allow me to assure you, what is about to follow is gospel truth. We see it in Paul and Peter in the book of Acts. Elizabeth stands up and in the power of the Holy Spirit, she declares about the joyous, leaping John at the sound of the voice of the mother of the Messiah. Now, frankly, that is enough to settle it, okay? I'll give you two more for free. Secondly, we did not read this part this morning, but in verse 15, when Gabriel appeared to Zechariah to tell him that Elizabeth was conceived, he actually told Zechariah that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. The same spirit that had filled Elizabeth has now filled her unborn son, even as the angel had predicted. And thirdly, the angel told Zechariah that John would prepare the people for the coming Messiah. And in Apostle John's prologue to his gospel, he says, John the Baptist came to bear witness about Jesus. That was his part to play in the story. Friends, he's already doing it. He's already doing it. The unborn John in Elizabeth's womb, filled with the Holy Spirit, hearing Mary's greeting, acts in the only way he can, and he leaps for joy in his mother's womb to herald the arrival of the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Astonishing. Elizabeth got Jesus right, and the unborn John got Jesus right. Now, I would be remiss... If I did not pause here for a moment this morning. Do you know that part of the story of reality is this? Every human life, inside and outside of the womb, is precious in the sight of God. Every human life has dignity because every human is created in the image of God. And this passage this morning, particularly John's response to the voice of Mary, has something important to teach us. I want to say this sensitively and tenderly, but I want to say it clearly. If someone has convinced you that what is growing in the womb of a woman is just part of her body and has no rights and no dignity, until we decide that it does, let me say tenderly to you, you have believed a lie. At least at this point, you have not believed the Christian story of reality. You see, in the story that God is telling, there are four people in this scene. Mary, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, and Jesus And the young John, six months from the moment of conception, is filled with the Holy Spirit and is already proclaiming in the small way that he can that Messiah has come. Pray for the end of abortion in this nation. And across the globe, pray for it. As you can, act in love to end it. And pray that those, even those who don't embrace our entire story of reality would at least embrace this part of it, that every human life has dignity and a right to live.
And let me say this, this morning. If you have had an abortion, or if you as a man have pressured a woman or played a role with her to abort your child, we love you. But that is sin. And you need to be forgiven of it. And thanks be to God, there is forgiveness for every sin, even this one, in Jesus Christ. And I would be happy to share good news with you this morning after the service. If if you don't want to talk to me, I assure you, there are many godly, compassionate women in this room this morning who will love you and counsel you and see your heart restored in Jesus Christ. You cannot run from this pain forever. Turn to the one who is full of grace and truth and be made whole. And in response to John's leap and how it points to the dignity of every human, you may say, well, not every unborn child will play such an important role in the story that God is telling. Not every child can be a herald of the king. You know, in the early days of the pro-life movement, you would hear someone say something like, what if you aborted someone who might have stopped Hitler? Or you might hear, what if we accidentally abort someone that God sends to cure cancer? Christians, that is not our argument. (laughs) That by accident, we might kill an extraordinary person that we really needed. So we better not kill any of them. No. Our argument is only this, the clear witness of Scripture. That before God formed us in our mother's womb, He knew us. That six-month in utero babies can herald the arrival of the Messiah. That every human being is formed in the image of God. And therefore has dignity and a right to live. But to the assertion, not every child can play such an important role in God's story to become the herald of the coming of the king, I I offer this account. When our daughter was three or four, she had gone to play at a friend's house for the day. And the mother of the friend called my wife a few hours later and she said, do you know what your daughter is doing? She's telling my girls that they need to ask Jesus to forgive them of their sins. She's telling them the gospel. She was heralding the good news of the coming king. Now I assure you, this was not the result of some super parenting that Sarah and I had done. We had not taken our daughter through some toddler evangelism course. Our daughter, I believe, filled with the Holy Spirit as a believer at that young age was heralding the coming of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So let me say to the children of this congregation, are you listening? Listen, do you want to play a part in the story that God is telling? You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait. You can tell your friends and your siblings, and remind your parents. 
That Jesus Christ came in the world to save his people from their sins. But finally, let me say this. Mary, too, got Jesus right. You see, Mary was living in the true story of reality. The angel's announcement and the work of the Holy Spirit in her heart had confirmed to Mary that she had been chosen by God to be the instrument, His instrument, of bringing Messiah down in flesh. Let me say it this way. Mary realized that a cosmic spotlight shone as it were across countless galaxies, was shining directly on her faithful heart and virgin womb. And she found herself at the exact focal point of all human history and even the eternal redemptive plan of God. She would be the mother of the Messiah. You see, she understood the ramifications of the birth of Jesus on her own story. Look at verse 48. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Folks, that is a bold statement from an otherwise humble young girl, isn't it? Mary's saying, from now on... As long as stories are told, mine will be remembered. And what will they remember? Her faith? Yes. Her submission to the will of God? Mm Mm-hmm. Would that be enough? No way. Mary knows the reason she will be remembered will be the part she played in the story of God by the grace of God and the favor of God in the birth of God. Mary believed her story would have meaning because of her proximity to Jesus and for no other reason. You see, this is the story of reality. As things really are, God created the heavens and the earth. Man rebelled against God and became his enemy. And at Christmas, we are reminded that the story did not end there. You see, the climax of the story could have been and should have been God rising from His throne, legions of holy warrior angels in tow, descending on this world to destroy His every enemy and returning shalom to His universe. And you know what? Someday that will be. But first, grace and mercy and long-suffering and an offer of forgiveness to the ones who spit in his face, beat him within an inch of his life, nailed him to a cross, once again proclaiming, we will not be ruled by you. And what was Jesus' response? Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. God in Christ came to redeem a people for himself. That is the story of reality. And you may say to me this morning, but what if you're wrong? What if you've got the story of reality wrong? That would be a big problem, wouldn't it? 
Listen, living your life on the basis of the wrong story of reality ruins all. Jesus Christ is the focal point of the Christian story of reality. And you may be a responsible citizen. And you may be, indeed, a very pious person. Your moral judgments by human standards may be impeccable. You may run the ladle at the soup kitchen, donate your clothes to the Northside neighborhood house, recycle every straw, and compost every paper plate. All good things, truly. If you get Jesus wrong, all is lost. The Christian story of reality and every competing story of reality all have the same fulcrum, the person of Jesus Christ. When the disciples wanted to know the way to the Father, Jesus responded, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you see why every story of reality stands or falls on Jesus? Because he made exclusive claims. So if he says who he says he is, every other story of reality melts into oblivion. The call to all of us this day is get God right. Understand who we are in his story and respond appropriately to the coming of the Messiah. See and embrace the Savior, the one Mary, Elizabeth, and the unborn John saw so clearly. The one who came to save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Father, we have been brought up against greatness this morning. The person and work of Jesus Christ. And I pray that this story that you are writing, that is not yet finished... That there are still roles to play in. That each of us would turn our hearts and minds in humility to a merciful God. And get living in this story. We pray that we would see the Messiah and respond to him in worship. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.